when you think differently, when you think, when you realize that, well, actually, maybe, you know, if you can just raise that question, that word, maybe, you know, then you're halfway towards building differently. Then you're halfway towards living differently. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Arconnect Sessions One to One. I'm Amelia, and this week I spoke with Kunle Adeyemi, founder of the firm Inle, based in Amsterdam and Lagos. Raised in Kaduna, Nigeria, with an architect father who was constantly redesigning his childhood home, Adeyemi studied architecture in Lagos before getting an MRC2 at Princeton, studying with Peter Eisenman. He went on to work for OMA for over eight years, playing a pivotal role in projects from Lagos's master plan to the Shenzhen Stock Exchange and the Qatar National Library. He left to start in Lay in 2010, where he focuses on issues of rapid urbanization and climate change in the global south. I spoke with Kunle this past August for his keynote presentation at the AIA Tennessee Convention in Chattanooga. We cover his work in wide breadth, how he focuses on cities' relationships to water and infrastructure, quickly iterating projects like the Makoko Floating School prototypes in Lagos and at the Venice Biennale, and why he left OMA in the first place to start his own firm. Due to a technical glitch, the recording starts about 10 minutes into our conversation. Okay, enough posturing. Let's get to it. Enjoy. So I want to then transition to the next stage of your education, uh, where you took your MR2 at Princeton, studying with Peter Eisenman. How would you compare, just very loosely, kind of from your best memory, um, how would you compare the the basic academic outlooks between your different educational settings? Uh, Well, Princeton was um, my interest in sort of um, expanding my knowledge not specifically on architecture, but really actually beyond architecture. And, and uh, at the time, I had worked four years after graduation from the University of Lagos in Nigeria. And uh, I had started working in the Netherlands with uh, Rem. And I thought, well, you know, I need to sort of learn something beyond design. And at the time, I applied to several schools. And I was actually told Princeton is a very theoretical institution for architecture. I'm like, that's exactly what I need. So it was um, a place, it was a, it was a time for me to take, you know, other courses, you know, film, history, you know, so I, it was, it was really about a different type of knowledge acquisition and uh, architecture, which I think also began shaping my interest in uh, or my understanding that, you know, architecture requires a multidisciplinary approach beyond design and technical competence. It's something that we deal with uh, as a publication, as a media organization, constantly, this idea that architecture education is either one or the other. It's either extremely technical and extremely goal-oriented, or it's, in the case of Princeton, often people might say, that's too crazy, that's too out there, that's too academic. What does that actually have to bear on the built environment. How is that important? And I love how you've addressed it, that it is incredibly important to have both. You will never know what you can bring back to the discipline when you go outside of it. Then you brought up your work with Rem and and at OMA, but how did that relationship first start? When did you first meet and how did you start working together? So while I was at the University of Lagos, just in 1997, towards the end of my uh, study there, this man came into our campus and apparently he was curious. He was uh, researching, he was doing some research with some students and, you know, he was already addressing or investigating the issues of urbanization. And apparently Lagos had shown up on his radar 
on, this, on their radar as one of the cities uh, rapidly expanding. And when you think about this, this is 1997, almost 20 years ago. It's quite um, a lot of foresight about the city of Lagos, where even a lot of business people, this was in the heat of, uh, you know, the, I would say probably one of the most difficult times of the city, of the country under dictatorship, you know, and uh, so it was, it was quite a, uh, an adventurous visit because he was teaching at Harvard and they were doing this research called Project on the City. So I, I got the opportunity to meet him with like uh, with the rest of my peers. And we were actually the students that collaborated with uh, the Harvard students to conduct the research. And he expressed an interest in employing one of us and a lot of, I guess everybody, a lot of people had applied and uh, I was just fortunate to have been chosen. And then how did that parlay into you actually working for the firm? Well, it, it took a couple of years, paperwork, you know, it's not very easy bringing some Nigerian kid from Lagos to uh, Amsterdam. So I, I worked two years after my graduation, which were really good years because I also got, you know, experience working in, in Nigeria. And in 2000 and Two, January 2002, I finally uh, moved to the Netherlands and started working uh, at OME. So it seems like an incredibly fortuitous situation to be in as a student because you are working and studying in Nigeria and you get you manage to kind of hook up with Rem Kulhas and work on the, the studies that he's doing of the rapid urbanization um, and situation in Lagos. We're just trying to understand what's going on before any types of actual planning efforts are made. And then while after you've done that, but a few years later at Princeton, you're also working with these issues of rapid urbanization, particularly in the global south or in Africa, with Peter Eisenman and having this whole other academic perspective to forcibly combine with your real lived experience that I'm sure was quite a privilege to have in that kind of context that many other people doing that research didn't already have. So how did it feel to then come together and kind of decide this is going to be the subject of my main inquiry as an architect and the research that I'm most interested in. Yeah, I think, well, you, you probably struck on a very important point there. You know, it's uh, a lot of things we, I guess we do are born out of lived experiences and um, things that really drive us are sort of somewhat embedded in our backgrounds. And, you know, I was, I was born and raised in the northern part of Nigeria, which is a totally different part of the country. It's a much more suburban, quiet, pretty much like Chattanooga, really nice. <laughs> and also very hot <laughs> at this time of the year. And it's a very calm, much, the pace is slower. Uh, I lived there until I was 16 and uh, I moved to University of, I started University of Lagos when I was 16. So Lagos and Kaduna, which was a city I, uh, I was raised, it's totally, you know, it's Islamic region. It's the climate is different. The uh, culture is different. The language is different. And more importantly, the pace of people and how people move and work and live is extremely different. So I noticed a very, very important, very, very significant change and shift in how people moved around when I started, when I went to Lagos and just the, the mass of people, the, the anxiety there. And to me, this was really a, you know, almost a, a, a cultural, sh a culture shock and impact, you know, because suddenly everything seemed like it was on speed, you know? So I think, that at 16, I could, I immediately had this impression of 
uh, Lagos as an urbanizing city, you know, or, or urbanization, even as a, as, a, as a kid. And that had a huge effect on me. So Lagos became this interesting subject that I, first of all, you know, started building very different relationships with. So, I mean, I wasn't born there, but I kind of lived there for a while. I schooled there, then I left there, and I kind of worked there, and, it, and I began studying it. So I think it was just, that was the birth of my interest in the issue of urbanization specifically, just Lagos being this key driver. And in particular, in comparison to Kaduna being, I'm assuming that's also when you first came to Lagos is when you got that impression of what water can do to a city and the various uh, stresses and challenges and opportunities that that proximity to water and that threat of water can provide a city. Um, when you went to Amsterdam, I'm sure you also have like, obviously you're surrounded by water. You have this completely different relationship to water. Was that much of a culture shock? <laughs> No, actually, it's, it's funny. People ask me if I had culture shock when I went to the Netherlands. You know, I, I, I think I probably gave people around me culture shock. Because <laughs> um, I was so excited. I was really, you know, happy to be there. I was, uh, you know, I was very curious. I was, you know, I was at a great time of my life. I was really just uh, fearless. I was, um, I kind of just engaged the city and the people in, you know, with, without any form of hesitation. But I didn't move to Amsterdam directly. I moved to Rotterdam. And I think it took a... I started going to... I visited Amsterdam for a while. I mean, once in a while. Uh, and the, I think the first impression I had of Amsterdam as a very beautiful city on water just completely uh, uh, struck me. It took a while to make before I made that connection with Lagos, I would say, and particularly the relationship between water came about a few years later when I began thinking about issues of climate change. So before you started working with OMA, your perspective on Lagos obviously was slightly different. But when you become more entrenched in working with Remkohas and OMA, you you now have to be a professional and working on the city that you previously had all this experience with physically and experientially. And obviously you have to have a different perspective when you're taking on a place as a architect and using the site as a site rather than a home or something like that to that nature. Although ironically, maybe I could say that name of your firm means at home. So there's some fun play there. But when you were working on the Lagos master plan with OMA, how did that change your nature of, or change your perspective on the city to finally becoming at it from an architect's perspective and as more professional perspective? Yeah, like I mentioned, I, I actually studied Lagos at, at Princeton and it's always been the subject of, of interests, uh, both academically, but also professionally. So I think, of course, Rem always had his interest in Lagos and with, with me being at the office, it also allowed that relationship to develop and we together kind of found more opportunities to do projects. So what we did was actually a, a, a project to connect a bridge. It was a fourth mainland bridge and it was a design to connect two parts of the city that were disconnected and needed this infrastructure to tie it together into a ring road. I think from a professional point of view, it was really just uh, an opportunity to really think about all the issues I had experienced, all the you know, the qualities and the challenges and, and also the opportunities in a city like that 
that I've lived, I've worked in and, you know, and to, to find a solution for it. So it was both an intimate experience, but also uh, one that, you know, was just exciting as a, as a professional. So while we're talking, there have been projects uh, being projected both from your time at OMA, but also under Nle. And what I'm seeing right now is the Mokoko Floating School. But I wanted to maybe, before we get to this, which is a quite recent and one of your probably most known projects, can you just talk a little bit about the most prominent or the projects that you're most proud of that you worked on with OMA and what impression they might have had on you? That's a, that's a very tough one. Uh, <laughs> you don't uh, have to choose favorites. Yeah, you exactly. Just... <laughs> you're going to put me on the spot here. No, well, I was very fortunate to work on on projects that we were able to take beyond uh, design phase. And I think that was kind of a, a strength in, in working in the office and just the the opportunities of the type of project I worked on. And so I, I would say I really enjoyed working in South Korea and China and uh, Qatar uh, on the projects we worked in Qatar, but South Korea specifically, uh, just given the nature of the people and the relationship I had with them. So I worked on uh, two museums, uh, uh, one for uh, Seoul National University uh, and one for the Samsung Museum of Arts, and actually a third one later on, which is the Prada Transformer. Just this building that sort of turns around. That, that was a lot of fun. Uh, and just the people. I mean, I think for me, the relationship with people is very important and the kind of conditions that allow, you know, ideas to be developed. And the, the Koreans and my partners in, in South, in, in Seoul were really, really generous and, you know, they're just excited to explore new ideas uh, with us. So yeah, I would say that was, those are, those have been very interesting projects. And then just sort of fast forward, those, that was, those were the first few projects I worked in 2002-2005. And then sort of fast track to last projects I worked on, which were the th- three buildings in Qatar, the Qatar National Library and the Qatar headquarters, Qatar Foundation headquarters, and the Strategic Studies Center, which was at the time the building for the RAND Corporation. But um, these buildings are being completed now, uh, and uh, they'll probably be some of the most exciting projects at OMA. (laughs) Well, and OMA is obviously still held in such high regard for any young architects would be happy to work there. And the environment can be very intense, I'm sure, but nonetheless, you get this great crash course in just simply how to run an architectural office, how to run a business, uh, how to manage a host of projects all over the world. And at a certain point, though, I imagine that that training and that experience either wasn't enough or was just enough for you to decide, now I have to start my own thing. Um, and I think that's something that architects, many architects struggle with is the decision whether or not to go out on their own, to start their own firm. And if so, when and how to do such a thing um, and what they hope to accomplish by doing it and what can justify it. So can you tell us a little bit about the decision process that went into deciding to leave OMA and start in lay? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, OMA is a, is quite a training center. I would, I would definitely not say it's a place that trains you about business. <laughs> but, uh, Ooh, yeah. but, uh, maybe not it, how to be the richest architect in the world. No. But um, I don't think anything prepares you to run your own practice. Uh, as we as we know, it's um, it's one of the most uh, challenging things, but also exciting, and that's why some people go on that route. But uh, it's certainly an incredible, incredible environment that allows you develop your skill set, and as a designer, as someone who's managing 
issues of technical and I mean technical design and uh, especially if the project is moving to the advanced stage. I remember my first visit to the office when I got employed, you know, this is me coming out of Nigeria, barely having seen nothing and suddenly I find myself in this massive office with hundreds of people, you know, making models. This was back in 2002. And I was introduced by the, um, the, the office manager and he said, welcome to OMA, the uh, Navy SEAL of architecture. Whoa. <laughs> it's really, I mean... Militant. I, yeah, militant. And it, it really feels like that. And I, 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 love, I love telling that story just because, you know, I spent nine years at OMA, which a lot of people who know the office would probably say it's not a... It's, it's almost an implausible thing. <laughs> Rich in cultural capital, let's say. Yes, exactly. But, uh, yeah, and, and it, for me, it was a, an incredible experience just all through... I enjoyed working late. I enjoyed uh, learning. I enjoyed working with, you know, a lot of talented people. And it remains that. And, and I think that's what it takes. You know, that's the value that you really get out of it. If you're committed to it and you really work hard. And I was also very fortunate to work very closely with Rem. So having that direct relationship and learning from him directly was uh, incredible, has been incredibly valuable. Then at what point made you think, I have to start my own thing? At some point, my background and interests uh, and, you know, I think that combination of me also going back, having done all these projects after nine years, think, beginning to think again about where I think I would add, add most value in Africa, and uh, developing cities in, in poor communities. I, you know, I, I, the more I worked in the Western world or the, you know, more developed regions, the wider the gap seemed. So I felt there was, you know, it came to a point where I really needed to, I felt the need to bridge that gap. And we had discussions about creating that environment to do it at OMA. But, you know, OMA is a, it's a much more complex uh, uh, structure. And uh, the decision was that I should just, I'll take it on my own. I'm like, yeah. So I, I left not on the back of having a project or, or having, it was really just on the back of having a vision and a, and a drive. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read back to you then what you've stated before as to being the philosophy of your firm, which is to bridge critical gaps in infrastructure and urban development by creating coherent networks and global exchanges that work for people. Sounds very straightforward, right? <laughs> Incredibly complicated, nonetheless, but um, very straightforward and, and feeds into what you were saying about going where you are most needed. And of course, we have nothing exactly like the scenarios that you're working in in Africa. We have projects like the Makoko Floating School and the Chikoko Radio Media Center, um, which are very much have a very strong relationship to the water, as well as not only relying on it as a means of actually creating the structure, but being adaptive to it and having this give and take relationship with uh, the changing water levels that come with climate change. Of course, we have a recent example here in the U.S., the tragic historic flooding in Louisiana as something where we come to see to bear the problematic infrastructure that we ourselves have come to live with and how it fails us at times of climate change. So I'm wondering specifically, when you're working with projects like Chicoco uh, Radio Media Center and Makoko Floating School. These are in communities where either they're informal settlements, some some people call them slums, or they are have somewhat of a antagonistic or tense relationship with local government. They might simply just not want them there. In the case of 
Mococo, the floating uh, settlement. So how do you get these projects running and work with the community in a reliable and actually productive way when the local government support just isn't there? Yeah, well, thanks. I, I mean, that's a very good question. And it's one that we're still tackling and learning. And, you know, as you probably know, my, my office is still is relatively a young firm. And what we're doing is really still in the early phases. And we're happy to see some uh, success stories and also some failures. And the critical thing is that we're learning from those and taking them forward. And I think, you know, the... The issue of dealing with communities and dealing with governments is still one that we're on, I would say, midway in that learning curve. Uh, we've seen how we can change the behavior patterns or behavior of, of a community, of a, of a, of a, of a region or, or the mindsets of, of people by most, what I'll consider one of the most important things. You have to, is action. You know, we can sit and talk, we can have debates, we can, you know, have ideas, we can conceptualize, but, you know, it's a very, very different thing when you need to take action and when you need to actually make things happen. And one of the things, one of the, I would say, challenges that we've, uh, over, or, or things that we've tried to do is really to make things happen, right? And uh, it's a very difficult thing, but that has been proven useful in at least allowing people to think differently. And then when you think differently, when you think, when you realize that, well, actually, maybe, you know, if you can just raise that question, that word, maybe, you know, then you're halfway towards building differently. Then you're halfway towards living differently. And these are the steps that I think are critical in negotiating these issues, very complex social, political, economic, environmental issues with both communities and governments that are embedded in, in policies. Uh, and, and then we, you know, architecture then becomes also a tool to, you know, it's, it's a, a tool to negotiate these, these complex things. And you can, create and innovate and improve and continue to develop, which is a proof of concept or a proof of what you're proposing as a solution. And you already have, as part of your practice, an ongoing research effort, the African Water Cities Initiative or Research uh, Initiative, that something like the Makoko Floating School, which was first called a prototype, is a prototype, can then feed back into. So these are projects that are not only being tested out in the field in reality, but also feeding back into the ongoing academic research that the firm is executing. Can you tell us the story behind Makoko? Because it's a pretty fascinating story. Yeah, well... It also probably started out in about at about 2011 when I barely a year after I started uh, NLA and uh, we were really just researching. We're basically just looking for challenges, these challenges that I thought, trying to find opportunities to bridge this gap. And I asked uh, Lagos State government officials at the time, uh, how can I help in addressing some of the problems that the city had, you know? And they said, well, you know, one of the issues besides water, power, you know, is, is urbanization, uh, is uh, housing. That can we, can I help with affordable housing? So I said, yeah, of course, you know, let's, let's see what we can do. And I, um, began researching affordable housing in, in the city. And I was curious to find out what was the minimum dwelling in 
a city like Lagos, you know, if you're thinking of affordability, why don't you even start with the most basic form of living that the average person produces? And uh, at the time, so I I realized that I, I, with as with many people who would pass over this important bridge in Lagos. If you ever go to Lagos, you probably pass through a third mainland bridge and to the right of it is this settlement that nobody really ever goes to. It's, you know, it's this back of, you know, it's, a, it's, it's like it's a slum technically and it's on water. And, I, and it struck me that, wait a minute, you know, why are people building so much in this environment and building so so much out with so little. So I said I was going to investigate it. And I, I went there and I saw the community and I saw they had built thousands of homes. And uh, I was, of course, very shocked at the conditions because it's very, you know, poor quality of living. But it was also immediately uh, an insight to how people can build with very minimum means, you know. So it occurred to me that this is perhaps a key to maximum urbanization with almost minimum means. And if we could learn from that environment and perhaps improve upon it, it could be a, uh, you know, a solution to addressing the issues of uh, urbanization. And I asked if I, you know, they, they said, well, could I help with an extension to a school? And I said, yeah, of course, if I can learn from you and if I can help to improve that, the, the way you build and, and live, I would be happy to. So that's how the relationship started. And it's, it's, it, took, it took a year and a half of research and just building trusts and talking to the community and learning about things, about how they work, how they build, and working together with them to develop what became the uh, floating school. And essentially, you know, it's it's a school fundamentally for me, not because it, it's uh, a space that actually hosts a few, uh, few students, but it's really about the education uh, for it's a platform for us to learn to think about how to live, build, and you know develop on, on water and urbanize on water. So when I began the projects, it was just the issue of building. And then at some point on, in July 2011, the same year, just a few months after, there was a huge storm in the city in Lagos and everywhere got flooded. And it occurred to me that, wait a minute, these guys are already living on water. And if land was getting flooded, perhaps these guys are already adapting to what may be the threats, the future threats of cities. And we began this research and launched a research called African Water Cities Project, which is really the an investigation of the intersection points of issues of urbanization where we're getting rapid growth in cities all over Africa and climate change where we have threats of flooding and climate environmental issues. And it occurred, we realized that um, although Africa is said to be the least responsible for climate change, it is actually one of the most affected by it or threatened by the impact. So the, you know, it became very important to look at the conditions and also learn from how everyday people like the people of Makoko are already adapting. And if we could cultivate that form of architecture and improve that, we could probably find homegrown solutions. So the school was really, it's the first prototype which we built really at a time 
when the government had said they were, okay, well, they were going to demolish the community. And it was really just an intervention, a political intervention to, in a crisis situation, built really quickly, very, very basic, you know, with eight men, with no uh, skill, nothing more complicated than a handrail local carpenters, materials from the environment. And that was that was the first prototype. And now, you know, we learned from it. We've been looking at what watching it. We observed it for two years. We used it. The community has done a lot of th- things with it. And uh, we've, we're now on the second iteration and, and hopefully on the third iteration where the idea is, you know, almost like product design. You have your first minimum viable product and then you improve on it. And the the goal is that we can develop not one, but several prototypes and not just us, anyone who's interested. And now we're seeing ideas of living and building on water becoming more popular, but it's to actually generate and catalyze the culture of addressing the issues of climate change and living not against water, but with water. And it allows you to have a fascinating and incredibly educational and often not the luxury of architecture to have such a short time frame of being able to build it, see how it works, and then iterate. And I hear architects constantly referring to product designers in this kind of envious way, being like, man, I'm just like, get someone to churn this out really fast so we can actually see how it works and then improve it. Um, and you have gotten the privilege of being able to do that for multiple iterations, as you suggest, as you referenced. Um, but I wanted to hear specifically about the second one, which was exhibited in Venice at the Venice Architecture Biennale that took place this past year, or is currently still taking place um, through November. What major changes did you make to that second iteration? And, and what was it like simply just bringing it to the context of Venice? There's these wonderful photos by Yuan Ban of it just tooling around the canals and just like floating on itself, but not being used in the way that, of course, yeah. it was intended to be. Yeah. Well, thanks. So we, we, we got the opportunity to, um, we're invited by Alejandro to, as one of the participants, 88 participants uh, at the Biennale. And I, I really jumped at the opportunity because you know, any opportunity for that would enable us improve on the, not just the school itself, not, not just the structure, but just the idea or the, uh, and the, but the body of knowledge that we're trying to, uh, uh, create or to, uh, bring together. It was, you know, was very welcome. So we, um, the main changes, the first important thing we needed to do was to look at how we can industrialize the system, which means that in the first iteration, okay, was built, we oh, we designed it in a way that was somewhat modular, but you still had to build some, do things on site. And we began thinking that, well, if you're going to make this thing into, create a, a structure that needed to, that would need to be deployed and built quite rapidly, you want to create a system that was easy to fabricate and repeat and be easy for people to assemble, almost an IKEA products in a way. Although we know, I'm not sure if all of IKEA products are easy to assemble, but <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's it's a it's an interesting model nonetheless. And so it was an opportunity for us to just improve on technology. We also looked at areas where the um, structure needed reinforcements, and because we're we're building in. Venice in Italy, the regulations were very different, so it needed to even be more robust. And we also just made it a lot more, the anchoring, which was one of the challenges that we had in the first uh, iteration, uh, was improved. And I think essentially it became something that you could really assemble very quickly. And if needed, 
disassemble. So the, and we call the MFS2, which is an Alcron, uh, short version, uh, a nickname for M, uh, Makoko Floating School 2. And it was built in 10 days by four men and yeah, it was really, really quick. And, you know, the conditions of Venice became very... We wanted to build it the same way. We, I mean, similarly, as, as similar as we did the one in, uh, in, in Lagos. But at some point, we had to accept the, let's say, the constraints and the peculiarities of the context. So it turned out that it was actually easier to build it on ground, lift it up with a crane and put it on a barge and float it across the Grand Canal in this kind of uh, spectacular uh, 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 feat, but that was actually the easier thing to do in Venice. So it became a very kind of Venetian version of, of uh, a very simple process. You know, we don't feel it's the most perfect version yet. Um, we're already working on even making improvements on the next one uh, to a point where we're comfortable that, you know, this is something that you can actually use as a solution um, to address developments. And it's not just a school, like I mentioned, it's really just a prefabricated floating structure that can be a home, it could be a, you know, it could be a restaurant, it could be some recreational facility, um, but really having a, a structure that is designed specifically, built out of materials that are locally available, uh, and such that you can actually build it with local labor. Yeah, that's that's what we're working on. And the first version, you know, some of the lessons that we've learned beyond the sort of technical things is also, you know, its relationship with the community and, and management, and which was one of the challenges that they had, you know, just putting together a structure that would manage it. It's the first, it was the first building, first public building they ever had in a way. So they're looking forward to having it uh, rebuilt. So we're nearing the end of the keynote, but I wanted to give you guys a heads up that we're going to take audience questions. Um, I've just got one more question for Kunle, and then we'll open it up to the floor for questions. As a reminder, we are recording for the, a podcast, so if you want to ask a question, make sure to use the mic so we can hear you and record you. But Kunle has a final question to you. Can you share with us what your plan for the next five years of Inle might be, and, and what are the projects that you're most excited to be working on in the future? Yeah, that's... Uh... Trade secrets? <laughs> well... You know, we were working, we're very interested in the in our research arm. I think it's a very important aspect of our work to, to continue to think and, and develop and have a very it's an authentic basis for actually impacting or creating impact in the, in the environments that we work. Uh, so the African Water Cities Project remains uh, very important uh, in my mind. I, I've had the opportunity to teach and to uh, research with students at Cornell and at Columbia. And uh, so that's, that's one. And we're doing a number of cultural-oriented projects, museums, uh, galleries. We're also working on... Of course, the other iterations and developments of uh, the actual, not just research on water issues, but actually building and developing prototypes. So there's Chikoko Radio in Potakot, which is also a totally different structure that is amphibious, not on water, but across uh, water. And, you know, developing prototypes that exists around the culture of building on water. I think those are important. And, and um, as you may have uh, observed from, from uh, 
some of the works that we do. We're not only interested in so-called poor environments, we're also interested in, I mean, and from my background, in very wealthy or, or more sophisticated projects, you know, and that's because I think the solution is not just tackling issues of poverty, but it's also tackling issues of uh, wealth, where the uh, opportunities to be more economical and less wasteful and, and uh, add values that reduce, that sort of bridge the gap. So our interest is really to bring the poor up and also uh, reduce waste and make things better. So, you know, the middle ground is something that forms itself. Well, thank you, Kunle. It's great to speak with you. Um, let's thank open you. it up to uh, yeah. the audience now. So we've seen from some of our other speakers how they conduct community outreach. I was wondering if you had any tips that you found work better with the projects that you've worked on or if kind of what we consider the traditional tools of the trade still seem to work in Africa. What are the traditional tools of a trade? So there's the town hall meeting and the survey you can find online. Uh, I would think that some of the kind of infrastructural differences might make some of those strategies more difficult or just need to be implemented in a different way. Yeah, I think my experience with working in the few communities that we've worked with um, has been that each community is very different and you have to sort of uh, adapt. You know, there's no one um, solution. There's no one way of working. And I think the, the most important thing is, first of all, building trust and building a relationship, listening, understanding genuinely what their needs are and uh, actually ensuring that while, you know, we're trying to act or provide solutions as architects, we don't get distracted by our interest in design specifically, which is always something that we're not really trained to do as architects. We're really interested in design. And uh, for that reason, I, I think we, we, I sort of developed a, almost a tool, toolbox of ensuring that all the issues or a number of issues, important issues that affect development are sort of, it's a sort of a checklist um, and we call it, I call it the DECIMA. It's an acronym for D-E-S-I-M-E-R. These are seven important factors of development, which we sort of use as registers to engage these communities to understand their demographics, the economy, economic issues around the, the, the developments, the social political issues, the infrastructure that are available or that are needed, the morphology of the, of, of the site that you're dealing with or the environment that you're dealing with and the environment itself, you know, with the weather conditions, climate conditions, and lastly, the resource available and the resource that you uh, can access. So these seven factors, I would say, are bit of uh, sort of a task list that ensures that it's not about just design. So architecture and design is really this, is what orchestrates all these issues together. I'm uh, really interested in uh, hearing more about the African Water Cities project. Uh, as you're getting into that, obviously you're going beyond just studying structures, but you're beginning to think about infrastructure and the challenges of uh, salinization of water and weight, how to deal with waste and so on. So I'm interested maybe early in that process, but I'd like to hear a little more about your thoughts about it. Well, thanks. Yeah, we're, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge project. It's a huge, um, 
uh, sort of it's very ambitious, but it's we are really taking it one step at a time. And um, the idea is is just founded on the very simple premise that there are there's that intersection points or there are points in on the continent where we see people converging because of the issues of urbanization and opportunities. Cities are expanding. And it also happens that these are the places that are also being threatened by climate change. And so what, what is, so our questions are what's happening at those points? So we identified 20, the top 20 African, uh, what we call water cities. And these are cities, these are sort of the t- cities that we should really focus on because they are places of um, challenges in the next 10, 20 years, but also places of opportunities if we get those, if we understand uh, those opportunities right. So it means that within those cities and communities around them, uh, we want to observe how people are already tackling those challenges. So a place like Lagos, you may have seen an image there. And and not just in Africa, many everywhere in the world now, we know those issues. But how are people doing it in a context where there are scarce resources, right? And if you begin to understand what people, everyday people do, and you learn from them, and you cultivate that, I think it's an easier way to solve problems than creating new solutions. Um, because I think the force of urbanization, for me, the critical the value is that people are already doing things, right? So why don't we observe what everyday people are doing? And that's where architecture should maybe focus its lens, like what are everyday people doing and how can we improve those conditions? And whether it is just building design or planning or infrastructure or waste, sanitation, you know, health matters. I mean, everything that involves around the built environment and culture. So it's a very, very big uh, ambition, but uh, I think we have you know, we're working and looking for, to establish partners and partnerships uh, from different fields. And of course, get support to c- carry out the research and with different institutions. So we were very small practice, but with a, a, a large ambition and a large footprint. So, uh, and we're looking for, for support and partnerships. I'd be curious to know a little bit more about your practice and how you operate. I know we heard from a lot of speakers who run nonprofits or where, where your funding comes from, who is your client, and ultimately how you run your business. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. You may have observed I said it's uh, business is a very difficult thing and not one of those things that I learned at OMA. Um, <laughs> But we are, we still are a business where we're not a, a non-for-profit. And I, I always like to say that we're a business practice with a social and environmental consciousness because sometimes people think, oh, you know, because you are socially conscious, you're thinking about the, you know, issues of poor or you're environmentally conscious, you must be an NGO. I don't think so. I think, I think this is just, it's a, it's just a question of responsibility and how we are positioning our, uh, uh, our interests in architecture today. You know, this is where I think because social to me is about urbanization and, uh, and environmental is about the big issue is climate change. We get projects where we, we get clients that come to us and ask to do regular projects, um, whether it's a, it's a bank in Lagos or it's a gallery or it's, um, I think the, the issues still remain. We want to ensure that it is environmentally conscious and it addresses um, issues of 
everyday people. It should be something that maybe adds value to the people around it or uses resources. So we have projects that are paid, um, that are somewhat commercial, but I, I mean that in the sense of they are paid projects. But we also uh, carry out research and we get grants uh, and support. So for instance, uh, Floating School was actually funded by the United Nations Development Program. And it was something that I started out you know, purely out of, uh, let's say, personal social responsibility and, and interest and curiosity and all of that. But uh, at some point, it, I realized that it aligned with some of the goals of uh, the UN, uh, you know, and we and they were really excited when we um, uh, presented it to them. And they had a fund that was perfect for that, which was the Africa Adaptation Program. So we got support from that. Um, so it's a, it's a combination of a few few things. Some some projects are on grants and some are privately funded. Kunle, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Arconnect Sessions One to One with Kunle Adeyemi. Dana Lovoynov edits our podcast, and Matt Skillings composed the music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of One to One. New episodes come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review. We are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, and you can email us at connect at arconnect.com. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>